We're continuing our series in Matthew this morning. If you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew chapter number 9, every Bible open. We love studying the Bible here at Three Crosses. Matthew chapter number 9. We getting there? Matthew chapter 9, we'll read from verse 9. I will read from verse 9 down through verse 13. Follow along with me. They're in your Bibles. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Dear God, as we take this passage of Scripture... And we look to it, Lord, for guidance. We look to it for, uh, for motivation, Lord. We look to it to, to draw us closer to you. I pray that you would do just that. God, I pray that you would be with me this morning. I pray that you would help us to recognize our need for you. And then, Lord, to be able to respond and to come to you and find you to be the satisfaction of all that we are looking for. We pray these things in your name, and everybody again said, amen. The main point that I want to make this morning is that we need Jesus. It's very easy to go through life not realizing our need for him. It's easy uh, for there just to be a dryness for days, weeks, months. We look back on periods of our lives, and we realize... There's been no warm-hearted devotion towards God. We simply have not recognized our need for him. High school was a period of life where I did not realize my need for God. I did not recognize. I, I, was, I was a relatively moral person. I went to church, but there was no warmness, closeness. I was, it was in the... It was in the latter half of my senior year. I was getting ready to graduate, go off to college, and pursue some fun and a way of funding that fun. And in the middle of, or in the middle of spring break, God broke me and got a hold of me and reminded me, Charles, you need Jesus. We had a 1997 green Ford Taurus. Me and a couple of buddies threw all of our camping gear into the Ford Taurus and we went off and we were heading to Yosemite. We were going to go camping and it was the best of times. I mean, me, uh, me and, and, and my friend Paul, my friend Rob, all going to school together, just enjoying the last bit of spring break, threw together a last minute trip and we're just, you know, it was back when iPods were still a thing. We played in our iPod and we were listening to music down, uh, flying down the freeway. We're just enjoying the youthful freedom uh, that goes along with spring break. 
We realized we were broke when we came to the uh, gate at Yosemite and we're scrounging around in order to pay the, the, the toll in order to get into the park. Maybe it wasn't the uh, most thorough planned trip that I've been on in my life. We got into the park, we found a camping spot, threw our tent up, took our food and we chucked it into the bear locker and we were off. We were going to go do something fun. We are out to have an adventure and I wasn't as familiar with Yosemite as Paul and Rob were and so they said, hey, we're going to go hike lower Yosemite Falls and I thought, I would like to hike lower Yosemite Falls and we went off. But being 18, 18 and 17, uh, we thought we can handle this. We can take this. Lower Yosemite Falls is that way. But for some reason, the trail goes that way. And as just a large pool of wisdom, we thought, why don't we just go that way? And so we did. Uh, started hiking and climbing. And we were, we were enjoying ourselves. We were taking off our shirts. As, you know, like the scrawniest little, uh, scrawniest little seniors. And we were climbing up, climbing up the mountain, having a good time. And doing that for about uh, 45 minutes or an hour. And, and just having progressively more and more fun until we came to a place where we stopped and sort of evaluated what was going on, and the mood changed a little bit. We, we, we had lost a little bit of that innocent having fun, just going for it, making a day trip of it, and sort of the seriousness of what we had gotten ourselves into started to set in. As we look back down, uh, we had come too far up to turn around and go back down. But we hadn't, made, we hadn't gone far enough uh, over to the side to actually hook back up with, uh, to where the falls were and where the trails were. We had just gone too far up and not enough over. But at this point, we were stuck. We realized that it was going to be dangerous to go back down the way that we've already come. If you know anything about bouldering or, or just climbing up rocks, it's... It's harder to go down. We at least have enough, had enough awareness to know that. So we thought, all right, it's not going to be easy. But at this point, the safest option is to head for that, that crevice right there. The crevice in the, in the Yosemite Canyon or Yosemite, Yosemite Valley Wall. We're going to head for that crevice. And if we can get into that crevice, we'll be able to get to the top of the, we'll be able to get to the top of the valley We'll be able to connect back to a trail with any luck. We'll be back down before the sun goes down. And we'll be, able to, uh, we'll be able to talk about this adventure even though it wasn't the adventure that we thought we were going on. We're heading for the crevice uh, when tragedy struck. My friend Paul was in front of us and it was Paul, myself, and Rob. And Paul slipped. He, slept in it, he fell initially about 10 or 15 feet 10 or 15 feet onto one of the short shelves uh, directly below us. But when he hit, he didn't, he didn't stop. He fell off the next shelf. At that point, he fell out of view, and Rob and I were, were stuck, listening to, to the brushes, uh, uh, to, listening to the sound of the brushes being uh, pushed aside as, as Paul fell through and as, as rocks began to follow along behind him. And we sat motionless for the seconds that it took Paul to come to a stop. Rob and I immediately snapped into motion and, and what had taken us half what had taken us forty five minutes to an hour to get up, we turned around and we, we recklessly tore back down. Eventually we found Paul. We also found a cell phone. 
uh, found the cell phone that Paul was carrying on the backpack that he had, and we called search and rescue, and we, we motioned to, to let them know where we were, and they said, just do what you can, uh, do what you can with CPR to try to keep him alive, we're coming for you. It took search and rescue about half an hour to arrive where we were. Rob was a lifeguard, and so he knew how to do CPR, and so we took turns giving, giving the rescue press and doing the compressions, but even Rob, with his limited lifeguard experience, knew this wasn't what it was supposed to, it's not supposed to be like this. Search and rescue got there, and they immediately took over from us, and they cut Paul's shirt off of his body. They opened it up. They took the uh, portable, portable defibrillator machine or whatever it, it was and slapped on the patches onto, onto his body. And I've seen enough TV shows to know how it's supposed to work, that when you turn on the machine, there's supposed to be a line that goes across the machine, and, and when it registers his heartbeat, there's supposed to be a blip in the screen followed by a sound. So I was looking for the screen, and I was... I was waiting, I waited, and I waited. The search and rescue man was looking, the search and rescue uh, person had also focusing attention on the screen, and when he knew what we knew, he looked up at, he looked up at Rob, he looked up at myself, and he shook his head. It was easy to go through high school, not realizing my need, until I stood there. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that stood in a place like that and recognized my need for God. But that was, for me, a very important time where God grabbed me and he, he violently shook me and said, I'm not going to allow you to go through life thinking that the road you're going on is going to lead to happiness, thinking that the road you're going on is going to be sufficient. Charles, you can't stand here looking into Paul's lifeless body and think that that's the end of the story, that that's it, that there's no more than this. There is more. I know there's more. I know that there is life after this life. And because of that, God shook me and he said, you need me. You need Jesus. What we're going to be looking at this morning is just that simple. How we need Jesus. Matthew recognized that need. His friends, the tax collectors, and, and the sinners, as they're called in this passage, they recognized their need, that they needed Jesus. The Pharisees did not. They stood off comfortable with their self-righteousness, detached from Jesus, not recognizing their own need. The Bible tells us that it's after Jesus had healed the paralytic man. We remember Mark Tyler's message from last week, the paralyzed man being lowered by the mat uh, into the room where Jesus is teaching, and Jesus commands, Jesus lets him know that his sins are forgiven him, and that he, in order to show that he has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man, rise up, take up your mat, and walk, and the paralyzed man does that. And then in verse number nine, it tells us that as Jesus went on from there, from that occasion, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him. 
Without any fanfare, Matthew introduces himself into his gospel. Before this, the author has not, uh, has not interjected into the story. And very quickly, Matthew introduces himself, tells about his relationship with Jesus, and then very quickly fades back into the background. That frequently is how our story interacts with Jesus. We get an opportunity to tell a little bit about our lives, but it is obvious that the main character of the story is not our lives or our experiences, but the Jesus that we are following. Matthew was a tax collector, and being in Capernaum, he would have been involved, he was probably involved in the commercial, taxing the commercial trade route, uh, of the, of the commercial trade that came through the Galilee area. But whether or not, or regardless of what type of, tra- excuse me, regardless of what type of taxes Matthew was gathering, what would be certain is that Matthew was an outsider. He was an outcast. He was somebody who had betrayed the Jewish people and gone to work for the Roman government. He was what was wrong with the world in Jesus' day traitors, people who had no idea of, uh, of what was sacred or what was holy and had sold out their countrymen in order to work for the Romans. He would not have been the type of person that a rabbi would have called, but that's what I love about this story, that Jesus comes and, and even though he knew that this would not be what, who everybody else would have picked, he picks him. He calls Matthew. Jesus is constantly calling the most unlikely of people to himself, calling them to follow me. Follow me is a phrase that we, Jesus, that we see Jesus use frequently. You guys remember back to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus, calls Peter, when Jesus calls Peter and his brother Andrew, when he calls James and John, Jesus walks up to them and he says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. There's another uh, story just one chapter ago in Matthew chapter number 8 where a man comes to Jesus and says, I would desire to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. To the rich young ruler, he says, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you come and follow me. Jesus was frequently recorded using this phrase, follow me. What I love about this story is the simplicity of it. Jesus comes up to Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that Matthew stood up and left everything and went and followed Jesus. And on one aspect, there's a, there's sort of a, a fear that comes with that, right? Like, Matthew, do you realize what you're doing? This is, this is a little irresponsible. This is a little extravagant, isn't it? Isn't this a little bit crazy, Matthew? Matthew, do you understand what you're doing? But yet at the same time, it's amazing that Matthew leaves everything to get up, to get up and follow Jesus. On one hand, it's a little crazy that Matthew was following the person uh, that just earlier had said, foxes have holes Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew, you're leaving your job to go follow that guy? But the same person who was inviting Matthew to follow him was the one who, when he was asleep on a boat 
and was rudely awakened by his disciples screaming, Jesus, don't you care that we die? He woke up from his nap and said, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves listened to him and the storm went away. This is the same Jesus that when he landed on the shore uh, was and was confronted with a demon-possessed man with one word, cast out out a legion of demons. He said, go, and the demons fled and went into the pigs. This was the same Jesus that when he saw the paralyzed man being lowered from the ceiling, didn't yell at him for interrupting his sermon, said, son, your sins are forgiven to you. And in order to make sure that everybody understands that I do have power to forgive sins, let me make this very clear. Rise up, take up your mat, and walk. And the person who has been paralyzed lowered from the roof on a bed because he cannot walk himself stands up rolls up his mat and walks out it's that Jesus who's calling Matthew to follow him the call for discipleship that Jesus extended to Matthew is the same call for discipleship that Jesus extends to us today It is true that a lot of times we'll say hey pray a prayer and you you'll have a relationship with Jesus if you believe this and yes praying is important and yes believing is important but what Jesus calls us to is a life of discipleship he says follow me when Jesus left this earth he said I want my disciples to go make disciples and here's what I mean by that idea disciple I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Ghost and after they're baptized I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you that is a disciple and that is Jesus calling to us today to follow him to be baptized and to learn everything that he said and to obey that when we hear that calling of discipleship when we hear Jesus saying follow me there's a sense that I don't know that seems a little irresponsible that seems a little crazy that seems a little extravagant but frequently we need to remind ourselves who it is that's doing the calling It's Jesus calling us into relationship. I bet Matthew was excited to follow Jesus. For so long, he had been on the outside. He had been on the peripheral. He was was the rejected in society. For so long, when people were walking by, they would turn a shoulder. They would ignore him. He was the sellout. He was the traitor. And Jesus says, I want to invite you in. I want to invite you into acceptance. I want to invite you in to significance. I want you to join what I'm doing in this world. Of course Matthew was going to follow Jesus. Of course he was. The invitation for us today is the same. That Jesus is calling us into his acceptance of us. He's calling us into a significant life, partnered together with him to do good in our world. Of course we ought to be people that follow him we need Jesus Matthew decides to follow Jesus and what happens next makes a lot of sense when something fantastic happens in your life you celebrate that decision last night a couple of friends were were married Annie Carbonero who went to high school with me along with Kyle Wilson who works both in our men's ministry here at church and at the cafe they got married and amazing that after their wedding there was a fantastic party And we celebrated their decision because that's what you do when great things happen. That's exactly what Matthew does. Matthew throws a great party and because 
All of his friends are people that are on the outskirts of society, not the accepted, not the respectable, not the people that, that you would think would be having dinner with a rabbi. Those are the people that show up. Matthew's throwing this party, and it tells us that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, that many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. At this point, a conflict arises. A conflict arises when the Pharisees come in and say, uh, excuse me, Jesus, you're a rabbi. You are a teacher of the law, and this is unbecoming behavior of a rabbi. Do you know, that who, do you know who you're associating with? You don't associate with these type of people, Jesus. And, and, and they come and they start murmuring, and, and frequently, like, the same way that it works for us, instead of, instead of going directly to the person that, that could fix it, they don't actually go to Jesus. The Pharisees don't address Jesus. The Pharisees address the disciples and say, uh, how come your master is eating with these people? What are they doing here? And, and frequently, instead of going to the person who can fix the problem, we just like to talk around the problem. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're talking around, trying to, trying to get, get their uh, questions raised to Jesus. What is this person doing here? And Jesus answers their concern. In verse 12 and 13, where we'll focus the majority of our attention. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come, for I have come, excuse me, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is, the health, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Before we get into the main point, there's a couple of things that I think, uh, there's a couple of things that I want to point out that I don't think Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not fully condoning the behavior of the tax collectors and the sinners. I think that's important for us to notice. That Jesus here, simply by eating with him, is not saying that he supports their their lifestyle and their choices 100%. Sometimes I think Jesus gets a bad rap because he's a person that eats with tax collectors and tax collectors and sinners. And we say, hey, if you're eating with him, then you must be supporting what they're doing. No, no. Other places in the gospel, Jesus shares a negative view about people who have sold out, uh, their, their, sold out their country to represent the, the Roman government. He has a negative view of tax collectors and sinners. And even in this passage, the two things that he says, the two compliments that he pays to tax collectors and sinners, you're sick and you're a sinner. And of course, the scribes of the Pharisees, or excuse me, the tax collectors and sinners, they've been called that their whole lives. And they think, yeah, okay, yeah, I, we agree. So Jesus is not condoning, uh, condoning their lifestyle here, but what he is doing is inviting them into relationship. He's inviting them into the relationship. He's saying, even though I, I do not condone the behavior that you are, that, that you are involved in totally, I want you to know that more importantly than me disagreeing with what you are doing, I am for you and I want to engage in relationship with you. 
the church would do well to learn the balance that Jesus struck. To not say that I, I, I part and parcel uh, condone what you are doing, that I am all for your, uh, the decisions that you're making, but even though I disagree with the decisions and the life that you are living, I am there to engage in relationship with you. And to be so comfortable to engage in relationships that the conservative people around us are thinking, wow, that makes me very uncomfortable. Just wait, who are you out to lunch with? Who are you going to, who are you going to see? Hey, who was that on the phone? That our relationships, even though we don't condone what is happening totally, we care about individuals following the, the pattern that we see in Jesus. Jesus is not condoning the behavior of tax collectors and sinners, but Jesus is befriending the morally loose and the not-so-respected members of society. Also, I want to point out that Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees are either healthy or righteous. Other parts in the scripture, uh, Jesus would state very clearly his view about the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, seven times Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So Jesus here was not saying, hey, tax collectors and sinners are bads, Pharisees uh, are are good. That's not what Jesus is saying here. So then what is Jesus saying? The main point that I want you guys to write down in your notes is this. That there is relationship for those who realize their need. There is relationship for those who realize their need. When Jesus is talking about the sick and the healthy, the sinners and the righteous, he's talking about whether or not we realize our need for Jesus. The truth is we are all sick. What separates the tax collectors and sinners from the Pharisees is not their outward righteousness or their outward corruption. What separates those two is that only one problem, only one group realized that they were sick. The tax collectors had no problem confessing, yes, I am sick. Yes, I am a sinner. They had been told that for years and years and years. They knew that they were on the outside. But with the Pharisees, there was a pride. There was a sufficiency. There was, there was enough nuance that they could they say, well, how about this, 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 and this. And through their, their argument, put up a wall and say, I don't need Jesus. Which is sort of scary for me. Because I, I'm a religious leader. And that my role in the story probably wouldn't have been the tax collectors and the sinners. That I would have been the Pharisee saying, well, how about this, Jesus? How about this? And in all of my questions, masking the fact that I need Jesus. Many times it's religion that puts up that wall, that we know enough, and we know enough other people. And for whatever reason, we can push Jesus out of the picture and consider ourselves healthy, consider ourselves righteous, 
and forgetting what Jesus said that I have not come to that I have not come to call the righteous but sinners that, that, that it's not the healthy that need a physician it's the sick that the relationship that Jesus has to give is for those who realize I need Jesus that relationship is available for those who recognize their need. I love Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The difference between somebody who has a relationship with Jesus and someone who does not have a relationship with Jesus is whether or not we recognize our need. That the person who is proud and self-sufficient, that, that, that has a reason why they're doing okay and everybody else is a problem in the world, that person blocks Jesus out and they never hear Jesus knocking on the door. But the person who realizes, I'm sick, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, now that's the person that Jesus comes and says, I offer you my healing. I extend to you a, friend, a, a hand of friendship. That there is relationship for those who recognize their needs. So the question then is, do we recognize our need? Do we realize that we need Jesus? I remember when... when when it first came into my mind that this is what the passage is teaching about, it is whether or not we need Jesus, there's just sort of a no. <laughs> where, where I was, uh, I was a little defeated because it's not a lesson that I can like, that I can boldly stand up and preach and say, I nailed this, this let me show you my example through this, but it's something that I'm so aware that I am in lack of. That if you were to ask me, Charles, do you realize your need for Jesus? The honest answer would be frequently no. That I go through life and, and, and there's just emotion, there's steps. And, and I can get through life without a, lot of distract, without, without a lot of problems and at the same time push Jesus away. I mean, really, for a lot of us, we're busy. We're very busy. We wake up and we have kids to drop off at school and then we have to get to work and there's emails to answer and, and there's, there's engagements that we need to be, be to. And when we get back, there's, there's sporting outings that we have to take the kids to and then we want to have time and have, have fun together as a family and there's go, 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 go. And frequently in the busyness, we push Jesus out of the ring and we don't realize our need for him. Or maybe it's not our busyness. Maybe it's simply that we're pursuing things that we love, Right? That there's so many shiny idols that are available to us that we are, we, are, we are constantly drawn to one idol after the next, following after and saying, maybe this will ha make me happy. Maybe this will make me happy. And we go, go, go. Not that we're compelled to go by business, but just because our hearts are drawn in a million and one directions and we are fooled by shiny idols. But the question is, do we realize our need for Jesus? And frequently, the answer is no. So how do we remedy that? How do we fix that? How do we get to a place where we don't find ourselves being the, the Pharisees in the story, but we find ourselves being identified by Jesus as the tax collectors and the sinners? As I was sitting in my car trying to get some peace and quiet studying for this message, uh, 
the only thing that I had to write on were sticky notes. Uh, I just left the office. I thought, I got to find a quiet place to, to study because I can't get any work done up here because I'm just trying to listen to the different conversations that are going on, and I just have terrible study habits. And so I just left. I got in my car, and I drove, and I thought, I'm, leave, I'm leaving my cell phone here. I'm just I'm getting away for a little bit. You should have realized that if you're going to get away to go write a message, it's important to have a Bible, and it's important to, uh, it's important to have something to write with. I had sticky notes. Uh, and I, I would like to say that, that this, uh, this, this, this plan of how we can see our need was something that I thought up, you know, that I studied the scriptures and that, oh, here's what we need to do. But really, it was just God saying, all right, you want to realize that you need me? Here's what you do. I found myself uh, pen in hand, sticky note uh, on my steering wheel writing, I am sick. I am sick. If you have your sticky note, go ahead and write that just on the top. I asked myself, really, Charles? Like, how, how sick are you? you? You you have things together, all right? And so I just started getting honest. All right, here's what I mean by that. What I mean by the fact that I am sick is that I'm proud and I don't realize it. That frequently I am mean in the name of doing things well. That I am filled with lust. That I am thoughtless towards God. I wrote down, I am worried. I wrote down, I am uncaring towards the lost and the hurting in the world. I wrote down, I am a bad steward of my time. I got to that point in my car and I, uh, I sat there for a little bit. Because these aren't like simple fixes. I've been proud for 30 years of my life. I've been, I've been uncaring for just as long. But these are deep-seated issues that I really need help with. But then I thought back to the story. And here's Jesus' promise. is that when we realize we're sick, when we realize we're sinners, that's the person that God can work with. That's the person that God can do something for. So I pulled off another sticky note. And I would like to say that this was, again, my inspiration or, or my profound knowledge. But this was God speaking to me, and it was powerful. I wrote down, I am forgiven. And I covered up the top of that list, and I stuck it back on my notes. And I praise God for being a God that comes to us and says, when you realize you're sick, when you realize you're a sinner, When you stop pretending that you're healthy, when you stop pretending that you're righteous, when you come and honestly take stock of your life before God, then, and only then, can God work with you. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That makes sense. A doctor can't do any help for you if you're sitting at home and not going to seek him out. Jesus cannot do you any good until you realize your need for him. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In between there, I love this phrase that Jesus, that Jesus says. Jesus addresses the Pharisees and he says, but go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I praise God that that's the way that he works. That when he's looking down, he's not saying, hey, Charles, perform. Hey, Charles, you make that sacrifice. Hey, Charles, you measure up. He says, my heart for you is a heart for mercy. And I can provide this mercy because I will be the sacrifice. I will die on the cross so that I can extend mercy. That my relationship with you will be founded on grace. I will pay the debt. And I will extend mercy based on my sacrifice. That God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Do you realize that you need Jesus? Do you realize that that is the greatest need that you will ever have in life? That no amount of success in any other venue of life will make up for the fact that we need Jesus. I wanted you to have those sticky notes because I want you to experience what I've experienced. I want you to take the time today, this week, uh, when, when you can, to go through the same process. That when we realize we're sick, that brings us into a place that we can enjoy God's forgiveness. So frequently, our religion is dry, it's passionless, it's heartless. And I think it's because we're not taking honest stock of our need and realizing that that need was significantly met by Jesus on the cross. That he provides mercy through his sacrifice. It, as we close this morning, there's, there's two things that I want to finish off with. One, Maybe your friend drug you in here and you're thinking, what in the world? Like, what was this? This is church. This is where we remind ourselves of our need for Jesus. And we're so glad uh, that you're here because we want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus that you might share in the same type of joy, the same type of refreshment, same type of freshness that we get from God through our relationship. We want to extend an invitation to you to recognize your need for Jesus. If you're in here, you say, Charles, never before have I realized that I need Jesus, but I realize it now. I want to invite you to acknowledge that. I want you to acknowledge that before God, to pray, to pray and say, Jesus, for the first time in my life, I realize my need for you and here's the beautiful part there's relationship for those who recognize their need that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking and all he's saying is open up open up and I will come in and I will I will sit down with you I'll eat with you
there's relationship for those who recognize their need. For those of us in here who we would consider ourselves Christians, we would identify with Matthew and say that I've, I've left everything that I've had and I am following Jesus. Would we be a people that recognize our need daily? In 1872, Annie Hawks uh, wrote a hymn that we still sing today. Her story of how this hymn came to be is as this. One day as a young wife and mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks during that bright June morning in 1872. And suddenly, I became so filled with a sense of nearness to my master that wondering how one could live without him, either in joy or in pain, these words were ushered into my mind and the thought at once taking full possession of me. I need thee every hour. The hymn, the hymn that she composed was, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. For those of us in here who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, would we keep this in the forefront of our minds? Would we say this together as a prayer that we would acknowledge our need for Jesus? Let's do it by singing it together. Here we go. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Let's pray together.